This is the Rent Vesting Podcast with Peter Mastriani. Marion Mays joins the Rent Vesting Podcast once again. Marion, great to have you back on the show. Thanks for having me back. I'm happy to be invited back. <laughs> just for listeners that may have not caught the last episode, Mary, can you just give us a little insight into what it is that you actually do? Absolutely, I'd love to. So part of my core business is teaching adult financial literacy, and these are you know, working professional independent adults. Then the other part of my core business is then assisting people to take action to build wealth and invest in property. And so we have a property education and mentoring services service, sorry, that we actually assist clients in selecting suitable property and then we have a full end to end service to make all of that happen for them. Marion, we, we live in a society that puts a, a very high value on education. But when mm-hmm. it comes to financial literacy, it's actually quite a poor skill set. You know, what, perhaps what's your opinion around this and, and why is it maybe the case? Yeah, Pete, a really uh, fantastic question and thank you. So I've been in this industry, in the financial services industry, um, for a long time. And in the last couple of years, I really started to think deeply about why weren't people, and I'm talking about professionals who earn, you know, $80,000 or above and are clearly successful in their given fields, why aren't these intelligent, educated people taking action to build wealth? And it was a question that I had. I didn't know the answer to the question and so I started to experiment um, when working with clients and started researching to really understand what was at the core of preventing people from taking action. And the conclusion that I've come to is that financial literacy is the key um, issue as to why adults don't take action to build wealth because they have a lack of financial literacy. In terms of education, yes, we live in a society where education is highly valued. We can see that by the um, private school system and the preference for, for many parents during a secondary education for paying substantial fees for the private school system. And yet within that system, financial literacy, I believe, is not taught effectively that people are actually coming out of school or university with basic financial skills. Is it actually in the curriculum? (laughs) <laughs> You're going to get me into trouble here. So um, I gave an interview late last, uh, early last year, sorry, with, um, I can't remember which paper, but it was published. And then ACARA, spelt A-C-A-R-A, which is the acronym for the um, the national body responsible for the Australian curriculum, um, contacted me to say that they noted in my interview that I had quoted that financial literacy didn't form part of the national um, education curriculum and that they wanted to correct my comments publicly. So when I pressed on with inquiry about that, essentially they were only formed I think two years ago and for the last two years they state that financial literacy has been part of the national education system. Now obviously the clients that I'm working with finished their schooling a lot longer than two years ago um, and have been in the workforce for a long period of time. When I press them to ask them about, well, what are the components of this financial literacy program, basically they said it was up to the individual states. They mandated it, but it was up to the individual states to implement the curriculum as they saw fit. So, you know, I then pressed further and did research and I called, I don't know, 
in excesses. I, I called a lot of schools just to kind of see if I could get more information, but I really couldn't get anything concrete or substantial that defined there was financial literacy programs operating in schools, both publicly and both privately. So in answer to your question, I haven't been able to verify the national body responsible um, for the Australian curriculum that says that it's been mandated for the last two years, but they don't enforce or police it, so they don't actually know <laughs> who's implementing it at a state or school level. Hmm. Marianne, when I was at school, I don't actually remember leaving with any education around how to manage my finances or apply for a credit card or get a car loan or what the implications would be for my credit score or, or anything of the facts. So I was at school a little while ago now, but I don't think that too much has changed. I would tend to agree with that. Dare, dare I receive um, backlash for that comment? <laughs> I, I would definitely um, agree with that. And myself included, you know, I did home economics, which is cooking. But you would have thought that in the home economics curriculum, part of that would have been financial literacy. How and to run a household budget. Yes, but it wasn't. You know, I know I learned how to make amazing apple pie, but not how to know how to manage a budget. Marion, that's actually um, a very important life skill. Absolutely. Well, given that money affects every area of our life, from where we live to the medical treatment we have to the types of education we can access, one would have thought it's a pretty fundamental skill set that should be taught in all educational institutions. But just leading on from that, we're starting to see younger and younger people come to our financial literacy events in Melbourne and Sydney. And we've had in, you know, the last couple of events, um, 20 something year olds coming through, through the evening, through the events and then through our 30 day financial literacy program. And their asset and liability sheets, Pete, confirm for me, no matter what, you know, the national, um, Australian curriculum body tells me, that these 20 something year olds, don't have financial literacy because they're turning up with, you know, excessive credit card debt, personal loans, and I'm not talking about five or $10,000. I'm talking about tens of thousands of dollars of personal unsecured debt spent on lifestyle goods that they either no longer have or they were used for experiences like overseas holidays, etc. So they're in the early 20s, they're working in a professional job and they have all this consumer debt, unsecured consumer debt, that they're paying off for something that they did a year or two years ago. What other research have you done around this? Uh, in relation to financial literacy in the education system? Uh, that and and what you've also learned through through the events that you've been running throughout the, the last 12 months? Yeah, absolutely. So I think being at the coalface and working both in a group setting, running these financial literacy events, I, I think the mere fact that a professional adult who's highly skilled in their given field and, and clearly very professional and successful turns up to a financial literacy event, we can make some assumptions from that. Yeah, They're there to say, I don't really have the basic skill set that I need to have to manage the money that I'm earning. Um, the other part of, I guess, the inquiry or research that I've been doing has really been at the coalface working one-on-one with clients and surveying literally every single client that comes to our events. So every single client that's ever come to our events has been surveyed about their level of financial literacy. Most, I'm talking about the majority, would say on a scale of 1 to 10, their financial literacy is around 5. Yeah, right. Now, okay. these are professional people. They're not majority of them. So they're professionals who are very... um well paid in a specific career that they've had to qualify for through university. 
So most of them would rate themselves as a five in terms of their financial literacy. Um, to take it even further than that, when I actually start working with clients after they've, you know, been to our financial literacy programs and decide that they would want, they want to work with me longer term to change their level of financial literacy, the number one reason that I keep coming back to when I inquire as to why they haven't taken action, why they haven't built wealth, why they haven't done something with the money they've been making over the past decade, the number one reason is we didn't have the knowledge and we didn't know what we were supposed to do and when you don't know what you're supposed to do, sometimes it's more comfortable not to do anything rather than get it wrong. So it's actually them saying, not just my research and not just my, but it's actually them saying, look, we just don't know what we're supposed to do. We don't know how to manage the money we have and we don't know how to invest the money we have and because we don't have the knowledge, we'd rather do nothing than make some serious mistakes with our finances. When people are typically looking to take action for, for an investment, the first thing that they'll probably consult is Google, <laughs> do some of their own due diligence, and then yep. they may feel that they've built up some level of knowledge to then go out and seek some professional advice. Uh, mm -hmm. But a lot of people can just get lost in, in that experience, mm. Uh, mm. primarily for not understanding maybe the agenda that that professional is, is, is pushing or, or that guru is um, mm -hmm. uh, is out there trying to, to flog. Uh, but what would mm -hmm. be your advice and suggestions a, a around this in terms of people actually uh, seeking good advice and understanding the advice that they're obtaining? Really great question. So I think my advice would be twofold. First, I, I reject the current financial services model and that's why I left the industry per se and I'm now operating in a different paradigm or a different model. My model requires an individual to have self-responsibility and be willing to learn some basic skill sets. The traditional financial services model is based on the expert, whoever that may be, the financial planner, the stockbroker, whoever, being an absolute guru and expert with all the knowledge and you being a novice and you don't have any knowledge and you just pay them money and they will um, somehow invest your money and make you money but you don't actually need to understand it. I completely reject that model because it requires no self-responsibility and it requires complete reliance and trust on another individual. So my first piece of advice to answer your question, Pete, would be obtaining some financial literacy. It doesn't mean that you have to understand how to you know, trade the stock market or how to go out and secure investment properties yourself or that you have to be a guru in tax structures of how to legally minimise tax. But I'm talking about get some foundational level financial literacy for yourself. And then the second part um, to that question would be, let's look at all of the available gurus and experts that one can get advice from. All the time I see and I hear things like, my accountant told me to do A, yeah? My broker told me to do B, yeah? But my financial planner said I should do C, yeah? So in the current model, we have people like accountants, mortgage brokers, um, property investment experts, financial planners, stockbrokers. It's a maze out there for people to say, well, so where am I? Noise. It's a lot of noise and here's the problem in the current model. Everyone's operating as a silo and everyone's operating independently under their specific area of expertise and view. Um, and again, if we take the premise that the client coming to them doesn't have any financial literacy, I, I just don't even know how, to be honest, I just don't even know how people navigate that space. Mm. 
So our model is very different in the context that, as I said, we work in the space of wealth mentoring and financial literacy education and we position ourselves, if you like, as a wealth advocate and we sit alongside the client. So if you were to imagine a board table right now visually, there would be the client and us and on the other side of that table would be all of these so-called experts, the financial planner, the accountants, the, the brokers, the property investment experts, etc. Um, and that literally is our model. Um, and we're like the bridge or the conduit, if you like, that helps the client understand that they do need all of these service providers. There is no question about that. But they need all of these service providers in an integrated way, providing information and financial advice that they can understand given the level of knowledge they have at that time, if that makes sense. So a question to raise from what you've just outlined there, particularly around building wealth. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a different skill set to actually earning money. Mm-hmm. Can you actually explain the, the mechanics of, of how people can drive their own wealth? Yeah, absolutely. So I believe there's two very distinct separate components to building wealth and one part of that is obviously earning money. Um, now, that's a simple process, of course, if you're a salary employee where you're on a salary um, and you're earning a paycheck each week. Different stories, you're a self-employed person, your skill sets need to be varied and a little bit more advanced because you need to know how to monetize service and products and how to generate income. But I would say one, one complete separate section of building wealth is earning money and then managing that money. And what I mean by managing that money, I mean by actually monitoring what you have coming in, what's going out, making sure that you're spending less than what you earn and that you're investing or saving at least a portion of of that money. The second component to building wealth is the ability to understand the different um, asset classes available to you and the different investment options available to you. And most, you know, many people know that, okay, I can invest in property or maybe I can invest in shares or maybe I can invest in managed funds. And so the second part of that would be getting really clear around what your risk profile is like. Are you an ultra-conservative person and you're really frightened to invest in anything that has any potential risk? Do you prefer something more secure? So getting really clear, first of all, about what your risk profile would be and then choosing investment um, assets or classes that suit your risk profile and your lifestyle and your goals. Um, and that's going to be different for the 20-year-old that has 30 years left in the workplace as opposed to the 45, 50-year-old who's really ramping up now to re- um, prepare for retirement. So, But I would say this to you, Pete. It is so common, and I see it every single month at our events, most people are earning money. You know, they're employed and they have jobs. I would pretty much say everyone who attends our event is earning money. But yet such a small percentage of them are actually doing this other activity that we call wealth creation. And if I can simplify it, I would say to anyone who doesn't have a strong sense of financial literacy and is currently not now building wealth and doesn't understand how to build wealth, it's simply this. Building wealth is acquiring assets, yeah, that go up in value over time and have the capacity to produce a passive income for you. And so I'll say that again. So building wealth is about acquiring assets that go up in value and have the capacity or the opportunity to provide you with a passive income. And so I think for everyone listening to this, if you're not actively doing that, whatever those assets may be, shares, property, whatever you choose, 
then you're consciously choosing to not build wealth. And the consequence of that is as time passes, you know, a decade passes, you have nothing um, to show for it and you have no increase in your wealth position. Rentvesting.com.au is proudly in partnership with Loans Only, Australia's leading investment lending specialists. Visit them at loansonly.com.au. I think on that point, we should move into part two. So, Marion, recently you shared uh, your thoughts with Domain on perhaps what property or property styles you shouldn't actually invest in. Can you just mm-hmm. walk us through your, your, your expertise around this? Mm-hmm. Sure. So, um, one of the things I spoke to um, Domain about, Larissa Ham was a reporter on that particular article that you're referring to, was looking at um, the types of property um, that people shouldn't or should be very careful about investing in. And my response was mass scale developments that are off the plan. Um, what do you classify as mass scale? You know, I, I'm talking high rise, yeah, with, um, you know, hundreds of units in it or, you know, over 100 units in it. So not your boutique apartment block or 20 or 30 or 40 apartments. It's funny because, you know, 10 years ago boutique was four or five and now boutique is, you know, 40 or 50. <laughs> but I'm talking with the big, larger scale high-rise developments. And my reason for that, and, and that extends to really anything off the plan, but to expand on the answer that I gave to Domain, it was really about the issue of sunset clauses when you're purchasing off the plan. And sunset clauses are basically um, form part of your contract when you sign a property contract and purchase off the plan. And essentially what that is is it's the period um, of time that the developer has to complete the building, yeah? So my concern with that is what we've seen recently, particularly with some of the APRA changes affecting lending, is sunset clauses that were, you know, 12 months or two years where the client's expecting to have a finished property that they could actually rent out and start receiving all the benefits of being an investor and the sunset clauses have been extended and been extended and been extended by the developers for whatever issues, funding issues, building issues, etc. But particularly my key concern with people purchasing off the plan is this, is that you're purchasing a prompt you're purchasing a promise that the completed product that you're buying, someone will actually really build and it will really look like the brochure that the salesperson selling you shows you and it will really be the quality and standard and finishes that you're led to believe, you know, in the shiny brochures that you get when you walk into a display suite. And for the average consumer, their um, research or due diligence, if you like, is pretty limited to I'll go to the display suite if I like the look of it and um, the salesperson tells me all the right things. I might jump on realestate.com. I might look at two or three other properties in the area just to make sure I'm not paying too much over, you know, the market value. And if that's all checks out, then I'll purchase it. And so what you're purchasing is really a promise. And so our process is very different. Of course, we allow our clients to purchase off-the-plan properties. But the process that we employ before we allow a client to purchase an off-the-plan property is exhaustive. And what I mean by that is we do extensive due diligence on not only the um, development and the developer himself, but also, you know, things like their previous developments that they completed. Has there been any issues or cases brought against them? The financial position of the developer and his true capacity to complete that project 
And so for any of our clients that purchase off the plan, we produce a research paper which is about 20 to 25 pages long. It relies on, I don't know, anywhere between 10 and 15 independent um, sources of data that we disclose to the client. And we exhaust every possible area of due diligence and research that we can to make sure that this promise that the client's buying on can be backed up by what the salespeople are telling us or telling the clients. So um, it's not that we say not to purchase off the plan, but we just say it's so much riskier than buying an established property um, for obvious reasons because an established property we can touch, see and feel. Hmm. A property with a plan is just a promise. It doesn't exist. It's hmm. a brochure. It's a, it's a brochure and a pretty model usually in a sales office somewhere. So for aspiring rent investors that uh, may be looking at entering the, the property investment space for, for the first time, what would be mm-hmm. your suggestions or, or hot tips that uh, you could provide? My suggestions would be to engage a professional to assist you with it, particularly if you're a first-time investor. Um, and when I say engage a professional, I'm not just referring to a property investment company that happens to sell property. I'm suggesting that you should engage someone to help you that really um, does more than just provide or gets access to the stock or the property for you. Someone that is able to do an intense level of due diligence and research and is willing to back up absolutely everything that they're saying to you, formalized in writing, documented with reports. I think that's absolutely critical. So I wouldn't, I personally wouldn't purchase off the plan without doing exhaustive due diligence and research on the development itself. Yeah and on the developer and his capacity to complete that project and deliver it as promised. So that would be my advice. And if you're someone that's choosing not to get professional advice for whatever reason that would be, then I would suggest that you do the research or as much of it that you possibly can yourself in terms of having you know a suitably qualified solicitor go through the contract, go through the sunset clause. I mean, we've seen sunset clauses and contracts that have not been picked up by purchasers, you know, that are four and five year sunset clauses. That means that from the time you purchase off the plan, they have that period of time to complete the project. Yeah. So that's really not viable. You know, a two, two maximum three year um, period is probably more viable. Um, but that's really my solid advice is that, you know, when you're buying a promise, which is what you're buying when you buy something off the plan, that you either engage a professional, a suitably qualified professional who's willing to back up everything that they're telling you in writing with independent research and reports. And only then, after you've had access to all of those independent research and reports and due diligence, do you make a commitment. And if you're not willing to engage a professional, then you do the research to the best of your ability um, that you can. Marion, uh, throughout the conversation, you've mentioned your financial literacy events. Can you just share mm-hmm. a little bit more about them and, and perhaps how our listeners can find out more about them? Yeah, so our financial literacy events are really cool. They're fun. They happen every month in Melbourne and now Sydney. And we run two series. One is called Wealth for Women. And the other series that we run is called Money for Men. So if you turn up to one of our financial literacy events that is uh, Wealth for Women, there'll be obviously all women in the room and no men. (laughs) Um, That's the first thing. And they're about a two to two and a half hour event. They're fully catered for. We serve amazing food during the course of the event. And really, they're, they're 
a time for you to really get clear about what level of financial literacy you have in a safe space and then to do some fundamental work on the night to improve your financial literacy. And we keep it very um, simple. So we explain complicated um, information in a very easy, simple way that people can um, understand it and leave feeling like, or most of, our, most of our clients tell us, they leave feeling like for the very first time ever that they're not stupid about money. <laughs> like, like they've gone to see professionals before and they just leave feeling overwhelmed or like they didn't really catch what was being said to them. Lost. Yeah, lost. And a lot of our clients tell us that it's the very first time for a lot of them that they felt like there was hope and that they were capable, not some guru or expert, but that they were actually capable of getting a grasp of this concept called financial literacy and actually taking some action um, for the first time. So... We cover basic concepts like, you know, the distinction between good debt and bad debt. We cover uh, concepts like how does one manage their money. might sound simple and easy, but there's a myriad of tools out there available from spreadsheets to money apps to you name it. We cover basic concepts like how much does one really need in retirement and how are you going to get there. And we cover, of course, all of the different ways one can use the money that they're earning to build wealth and what are the different asset classes. Um, it's not a theatre-style lecture. We sit around a board table. Um, it's fully interactive um, and sharing of information and, of course, myself presenting. In the Money for Men series, it's the same format. And, of course, if you attend the Money for Men series, there's only men in the room. Um, and I usually have one to two uh, male speakers join me at those events. And we might have someone who's um, you know, a professional coach and then we'll bring in an industry expert to talk about a specific asset class or a specific way that you can build wealth. And those events are running uh, in Melbourne on the uh, 8th of March. It's a women's event. On the 5th of April, there's a men's event in Melbourne and our next Sydney event which I think is almost sold out. I think most of these events are three quarters sold out, but there's still space available in a few of them. I was just going to say what I'll do is I'll add a link into the show notes so listeners can click through to, to those events to, to see the details yeah. and, and register. And how else can our listeners find out more about what it is that you actually do? So they can go to our website, which is baileyastanley.com.au, um, which I assume you'll pop in the link so yeah, they can I'll, find it. Definitely. <laughs> But what I would really say to anyone listening, if you've ever had the inclination that you are not maybe making the most of the money that you're earning or you've come to the realization that it's time to start adulting and doing something <laughs> with, with your money. Yeah. No, really. And we joke about this and look, our workshops are lighthearted and fun, but you know, we call people on their stuff and we say, really, if you're making six figures, it's time to start adulting. And not even if you're making six figures, whatever you're making, it's time to start adulting and doing something valuable with this resource called money or income that you have. But for anyone who's listening, um, you'll be surprised when you sit around a boardroom table, you know, with 20 other people and they're all quite successful in their field and they all sit there and they're in exactly the same position as you. And that is, yes, they're successful and they're earning good money, but they're just not taking action to build wealth. And the truth is the reason they're not taking action to build wealth is they're not really sure what they're doing. And here's the cool bit that I love the most. Pretty much everyone that rocks up to our events, people that are willing to say, look, I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing, 
and I want to take responsibility and I want to learn a little bit about financial literacy um, and I don't want to just relinquish all my power and go to some guru and just pay them a lot of money and rely on them to tell me what, they, what they're going to do with my money and what they're not going to do. And that's what I really love is that just adults turning up going, yep, yeah, don't know how to do this, I'm willing to hang out for a couple of hours, learn some basic financial literacy. Um, and then from our events, we have a 30-day financial literacy program that is operated virtually. And that's where I um, work with all of the people who join that 30-day literacy program by posting a question each day around financial literacy and providing the answer. And in that forum, I coach and mentor people. So it's small chunks of information. And at the end of 30 days, uh, what we see is pretty much more than 50% of those people taking action in the real world and starting to invest or manage their money or buy an investment property after they come out of that financial literacy program. And that's why I know, you know, that's why I'm so deeply passionate, Pete, about this work and feel so called to really like just keep pushing and serving this area because I've seen it. I've seen when people know better, they do better. And I've seen that when people have a little bit of confidence and they're not put down and they're not told that they're stupid um, or this is not their area of expertise, that they actually will take action. So, yeah, so that's how everyone can find out a little bit more about the work that we do and how we do it. Marion, thank you very much for giving up all your time to share your expertise and, and your thoughts on the Reinvesting podcast. It's been great to have you back on the show. Thanks, Pete. Thanks for having me back and it's always a pleasure. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Take care. Thank you for listening in to another episode of the Rent Vesting Podcast. We'll continue bringing you the latest investment strategies and news. So stay updated by subscribing to the podcast and by utilizing the free resources at rentvesting.com.au. If you do genuinely enjoy the podcast, please leave a rating and review. Mightn't seem important. However, it helps us more than you think. Here's to your investing success. Rentvesting.com.au. Rethink, reinvent, rentvest.